Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. As I mentioned, we're, we've been in this study in the book of Acts, and we've been in this series since the week after Easter last year. This has been a very long series, but we've paused for a few different series in between. And I was talking to my wife last night. We were, I was getting ready for today and looking over some of the previous messages. And I said, oh, babe, look, this is where we paused the book of Acts to do Mother's Day last year. <laughs> and so it's been a very long series, but I've very much enjoyed it, and we're coming to a close. We're getting to the end of this series, and I want to encourage you, if you um, have missed some of these messages, we, in the foyer, right there at our Welcome Center, we have these cards, and they're QR cards. This one is the Book of Acts. If you look on the back, all you have to do, there's a QR code there. All you have to do is pull out your phone, the camera, and it'll take you to every single message in this series. And so that is right there at our welcome desk. You can feel free to grab one on your way out. We have other messages, other message series that we've done. You can grab one for yourself or you can give one to a neighbor or a friend or a loved one, somebody that you think would benefit from hearing God's word. And so just take that, give that away. We would love for you to do that. But also, we always put this QR code on the screen in this series, so you can take a picture of that, and that'll also take you to the same place, all of the messages for this series and some of our other series as well. Now, a very important theme in the book of Acts that I don't want you to miss is this. When, when the authors were writing the books of the Bible, they knew where they were going. They didn't write it chapter by chapter and then the very next chapter go, what do I want to say here? Oh, I think I'm going to say this. It was written as a book. Now, the author of Acts, as you might remember, is the, the man who wrote the book of Luke, whose name is Luke. And Luke was a doctor, a physician. He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts is kind of um, the volume two of the book of Luke. Luke was all about Jesus's ministry here on earth. Acts is all about Jesus's ministry, but through the church. And one of the incredible themes of this book is going from Jerusalem to Rome, from Jerusalem to Rome. Now for the Jewish person in that day, Jerusalem was the most important city in the world because that's where the temple was. And the Jews were God's chosen people. They were the people that Moses brought out of Egypt. They were, in the, they were the Israelite children. Now, I won't get into all the nuances, all of those things, but the Jewish people were God's chosen people. And the most important city in the world to them was, again, Jerusalem. Now, for the the Gentile world, which is everyone who's not a Gentile, I mean, everyone who's not a Jew, the most important city in the world at that time was the city of Rome. That's where Caesar was. That's, that was the capital of this empire that had taken over all of the known world, most of the known world at that time. And so one of the incredible themes is Jesus dying on the cross with, by the, at the hands of the Jews and the Roman people bringing the gospel through his followers from this city that was the most important to the the Jews, Jerusalem, to Rome, the most important city of the Gentiles. 
That's one of the incredible themes of this book. That's actually where the book of Acts ends. It ends with Paul on his way to Rome. Now, we left off with the Apostle Paul talking about this man who was um, a persecutor of the church. He persecuted Christians. And this man was adamant. He was very religious. He was a Jewish man. He was a Pharisee. And he, in his heart, went after the Christians to kill them because he believed he was doing the right thing. He believed that he was killing them to stamp out this fake, false religion called Christians or Christianity, these followers of the way. So he went about killing people. He was actually there, as many of you remember, at the stoning of the very first martyr, a man named Stephen. And he stood there collecting the coats of all of the men who were killing this Christian man as a sign of approval. Like, y'all are doing a good job killing them. Then, of course, he has his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life is drastically changed. And I'm summarizing very quickly just to bring you back up to speed. He has his encounter with God, and God calls him to preach the gospel. And he goes from being a man who persecuted the church, killing Christians, to a man who is perhaps one of Christianity's greatest spokespersons in our history. And he traveled around to all of the Gentile cities and communities, different places, different ethnic groups of people preaching the gospel and planting churches. Yet when he comes back to Jerusalem, the place of his ancestors, his people, they arrest him and they put him in prison. He's there in the temple and they arrest him, they put him in chains and he's in prison. Now where we left off, he was standing before one of the governors of that area, of Judea. It was a man by the name of Felix. Everybody say Felix. Felix was a crook. Felix was a wicked man. Felix was a former slave whose brother happened to be buddies with, this, with the emperor Nero at the time and got him a job being the governor. So this is where we left off. Paul was in chains. He stood before Felix. Are y'all with me so far? Okay, I gave you all of that so we can get right back into this because we, we took about a month break. I wanted to catch up to speed with where we're at. Let's pick up our story in Acts chapter 24, verse 27. This is what it says. After two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. So Paul has stood before this man, and this man had found nothing wrong with this, this man, Paul. Nothing that was worthy of him being kept in chains. But because he wanted to please the Jewish people, he left them in jail. So for two years, this great missionary, this great man has been in chains for a crime he did not commit. Verse 1 of chapter 25, three days after Festus arrived in Caesar's, this is the new governor, he arrived in Caesarea to take over his new responsibilities, he left for Jerusalem, where the leading priests and other Jewish leaders met with him and made their accusations against Paul. They asked Festus as a favor to transfer Paul to Jerusalem, planning to ambush and kill him on the way. But Festus replied that Paul was at Caesarea and he himself would be returning there soon. So, he said, those of you in authority can return with me. If Paul has done anything wrong, you can make your accusations. I want you to see this, time out. 
This man has been in jail for two years. You would think he would have been forgotten about. But the Jewish people hated him so much that they were waiting for their opportunity to kill this man two years after the fact. That's hatred. I want you to know something. When it comes to being a representation of the gospel or someone who's living for Jesus, you're really living for God, there are going to be people in this world who for no other reason than the fact that you're a Christian just don't like you. How many of you have people at your job that just don't like you? How many of you are lying right now? How many of you have people in your family who just don't like you? How many of them are sitting next to you? <laughs> Listen, darkness will never be okay with light. Darkness does not like the light. These Jewish religious leaders were corrupt men. Yet here's this man who came shining with the light of Jesus in his face and they absolutely hated him. So even two years later, they're trying to kill him. And Festus hasn't even really hit the ground yet and they're already, well, probably one of their first requests is, hey, welcome aboard, we wanna kill Paul. Give us this man, Paul. He doesn't even know who that is. They just hated him. Because everything he stood for would rock the world as they knew it. Everything he preached would transform and turn their worlds upside down. Can I just tell you this about the gospel? about the message that we believe, everything that we believe has the power to turn the world upside down. Because it's not about us, it's not about our prominence, it's not about the greatness even of our nation, it is about the greatness of our king and his name is Jesus. It is. And we have one king and one king only, Jesus Christ. Now. This is what history tells us about this man, Festus. He was a by-the-book kind of man. He, again, he succeeded this man named Felix as governor of the region of Judea. Yet he was only governor for two years, and I'll tell you why in a little bit. Verse 6, about eight or ten days later, Festus returned to Caesarea, and on the following day, he took his seat in court and ordered that Paul be brought in. When Paul arrived, the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem gathered around and made many serious accusations, and I love how the Bible says this, that they couldn't prove. They were hurling these things. He did this. He did this. He killed my cat. He hacked my Instagram. And he couldn't prove anything. So yet again, I want you to get this scene. I don't want you to miss this. Here's this man, Paul standing by himself, surrounded by a group of people who hate him, standing in front of a man who at the snap of a finger could have him killed, yet he stood there with boldness and with confidence. Why? Because if God is with you, you're the majority. And we talked about this the last time we were, the last part, part 30 of this message series, But if God is with you, you are the majority. You're the majority. If God is for you, he's more than the whole world against you. And Paul is proving this. Because these people, from the outside looking in, look like they had the advantage. But Paul knew, I've got God with me. The advantage is always mine. 
Church, any situation that you are in, it doesn't matter who's coming after you, it doesn't matter what's going, come, what's hurling your way, what accusations are coming, what people don't like you, what control it seems like people have over your life, if God is with you, you win. You win. Never forget that. You win. So this man is standing before them. Verse 9, then Festus, wanting again to please the Jews, asked him, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there? Festus's back is up against the wall. Why? Because in that day, if riot, the Roman Empire did not take kindly to riots. They knew it was the job of the governor to keep the peace in that region. And if there were riots that started breaking out, this brand, this newly positioned governor would be in a lot of trouble with Rome. So in his heart of hearts, even though he knows the right thing to do, he's still wanting to please the Jews. Listen, if you're a person of influence in this room, don't miss this, look up here. If you are a person of influence, if you are a leader in any capacity, whether it's in this church or in your community or in the government or any of those things, in the public school system, if you are a person of influence, do not compromise. Do not compromise. You are going to be tempted to do the right thing because, I mean, excuse me, the wrong thing because it's popular. God won't back that. God will never support us doing the wrong thing because of popular opinion. And here's the thing about popular opinion. You can ride that wave, but it is a wave, and one day it will crash. And as it crashes, you will crash with it. I look and I pray and I long for and I look for and want to be the kind of leader who has integrity, a person who does what's right because it's right. This is a small challenge to you. Let's keep going. Verse 10. But Paul replied, no, this is the official Roman court, so I ought to be tried here. I love him. Paul's going, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. You know very well I am not guilty of harming the Jews. If I have done something worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. But if I am innocent, no one has a right to turn me over to these men to kill me. I appeal to Caesar. This is a big moment in scripture. This is a big moment that's taking place. And an even bigger moment is getting ready to happen. But he says, listen, I don't, you don't have the right to turn me over to them. I'm a Roman citizen. I know my rights. I appeal to Caesar. When he did this, this may seem like a knee-jerk reaction, but this was God's plan the whole time. Because if you remember a few chapters ago, God told Paul that he was going to send him to Rome. And when Paul made this comment, as a Roman citizen, the governor had to send him to Rome. This, there are situations in our life that look like we're in other people's control. We're never in other people's control. You are always in the, under the control of God if you're following him. And if he gives you a word, listen, don't miss this. If he gives you a word, you can trust that. It may look like everybody else has the influence, but you serve a sovereign God who can take anything that's been used against you and use it for your good. And Paul knew this. Paul knew, 
by me appealing to Caesar, this is gonna bring me right to where God wants me to be. Now God used this moment. God took this pagan emperor, this, excuse me, this pagan governor to work out his will. God used Paul. Paul was smart enough to use the systems of the world to help establish God's kingdom in the earth. There are certain things that you are wired for. Again, I mentioned Paul being a Roman citizen. There are certain things that God has uniquely wired you for that you're supposed to use for his kingdom. Things in your background that open up doors for you with people that I wouldn't have simply because of your background. People that you're able to interact with and speak to and share the gospel with that nobody else in this room would have the ability to share the gospel with. But it's in God's sovereign plan. It's how he's wired you. It's how he made you. And I'm going to share that more in a moment. God knew all of these things. Verse 12, Festus conferred with his advisors and then replied, very well, you've appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you will go. Festus says, I dodged that bullet. Let Caesar take care of that one. Verse 13, a few days later, King Agrippa, everybody say King Agrippa. King Agrippa arrived with his sister Bernice. Now say Bernice. These are two very important figures that I want you to hear that background. To pay their respects to Festus. Now if that name King Agrippa sounds familiar to you, it should. Because he was a Herod. One of the Herods. In the Bible, in the New Testament, you hear the name Herod mentioned all the time. It was, it's not the same person. Herod was like a theme, like a name, like a type of king, like Caesar. We had Caesar Augustus and all these different Caesars. Herod were, di- were the same kind of themed, different people, different kings. And let me give you the background. This Herod, Herod Agrippa, his great-grandfather was Herod the Great who was the Herod in the Bible who killed the kids in Bethlehem trying to find Jesus and kill him. That was his great-grandfather. Remember when the wise men came and they left and didn't tell Herod where Jesus was and so he just went and killed all of the the little baby boys in Bethlehem. That was his great-grandfather. And his granddad or great-uncle, some scholars debate this, was the same Herod who killed John the Baptist. That was, the, that was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded because he took a stand against him and he wanted to please his little daughter girl. I won't get into that story. My wife's on the phone going, please don't. His dad was also Herod Agrippa. He was Herod Agrippa II. His dad was Herod Agrippa I. And his dad, if you remember, we preached about this in the book of Acts chapter 12. He's the man who showed up full of pride and arrogance, dressed like Elton John. And he let all of these people give him the praise that only deserves to God. And God himself struck him dead in Acts 12 because of his pride and his arrogance. This is his family line. If you think you have a dysfunctional family, this is next level. So that's who King Agrippa was. King Agrippa I died, and his son, the one we're talking about now, Herod Agrippa, excuse me, yeah, Herod Agrippa II, he was 17 years old when his dad died. That's what history tells us. He was 17 years old. 
And the Roman Empire did not think he was ready to take over his dad's role, so they gave him a much lesser role, somewhere near like Lebanon. And they let him be the king of that little area. And in time, they slowly gave him more and more territory. So now he's coming back as the king of Judea. And the Bible talks about his sister, Bernice. Now let me give you a little background on Bernice. His sister, she was the daughter of King Agrippa. She was married once to a man who died, who happened to be her uncle. And when he died, she moved in with her brother. And history tells us that the rumor swirling around was that King Agrippa II was in an incestuous relationship with his sister, Bernice. These are the people that Paul is having to stand before. These are the people that are, have the ability to make a judgment call on Paul's life. History also tells us that Bernice, after her relationship with her brother, that the rumored relationship with her brother, that she moved back to Rome and became the, the mistress of another emperor, this time by a man by the name of Titus. Now this Titus, his dad was the man who ordered the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD, 70 AD. I know I'm giving you a lot of information, but I'm going somewhere with this. Please bear with me. <coughs> That was his dad. Titus at the time was not the emperor, but he's the man who literally went in, don't miss this, and destroyed the temple. Destroyed the place that the Jews held as the place where you met with God. The very foundation of their Jewish religion, the man who she went and had an affair with was the man who destroyed the Jewish world. This is who Paul is standing in front of. Talk about pressure. Talk about intimidation. Talk about feeling like your life is in someone else's hands. Verse 14, during their stay of several days, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. There's a prisoner here, he told him, whose case was left for me by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the leading priests and Jewish elders pressed charges against him and asked me to condemn him. I pointed out to them that Roman law does not convict people without a trial. They must be given an opportunity to confront their accusers and defend themselves. When his accusers came here for the trial, I didn't delay. I called the case the, the next, excuse me, the very next day and ordered Paul brought in. But the accusers made, excuse me, the accusations made against him weren't any of the crimes I expected. Instead, it was something about their religion and some dead guy named Jesus, who Paul insists is alive. I was at a loss to know how to investigate these things, so I asked him whether he would be willing to stand trial on these charges in Jerusalem. But Paul appeared to have his case decided by the emperor, so I ordered that he be held in custody until I could arrange to have him sent to Caesar. I'd like to hear the man myself, Agrippa said. And Festus replied, you will tomorrow. Paul appealed to a man named Nero, who was one of the most insane emperors in all of the Roman history. This man was so crazy, he was so insane that he literally set fire to his city. And when people got upset that he set fire to it, he blamed the Christians and started a whole type of persecution against them. They would literally, I'm not trying to be too graphic, but I want you to get this. 
This is, we, sometimes we're nervous and afraid about sharing our faith and people making fun of us. This emperor would have Christians dipped in tar and pitch and put them up on a stake and light them on fire as an, on the entrance way into their coliseums. They would, throw, they would literally sew Christians into lambskin, sew them into lambskin and release lions to eat them. And they would do this in stadiums for people to see. This was the level of commitment that Christians had in that day. It was not, yeah, I want to go to heaven. It was Jesus legitimately is the Lord of my life and I'm willing to live for him, be a witness for him, and even lay down my life for him. But this emperor, this is the man that Paul appealed to. I want to go stand before him. So I want you to see this about Paul too. History only tells us of really one, there's only really one recording in history of what Paul looked like. We have one statement, it's in what's called the Acts of Paul, and it gives us a description of what Paul looked like. And it's not what you expected. This is what it says about Paul. It says, Paul was a man small of stature, that's nice for he was short, with a bald head, and crooked legs, which means Paul was bow-legged. <laughs> so he was short, bald-headed, bow-legged, and had a good state of body, meant he wasn't fat, with eyebrows meeting. <laughs> Paul had a unibrow. <laughs> so when you picture and you think about like Charleston Heston standing there, wasn't that. He was short, bow-legged, with a unibrow, bald, and it says, and nose somewhat hooked. So he had a hooked nose, and he was full, listen to this, he was full of friendliness. For now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. Jesus was, uh, the Bible was very correct when it says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. This little short, bald, bow-legged man with a unibrow changed the world as we know it. Stood before kings and boldly proclaimed the gospel and the word of God changing the world. We are here because he went to the Gentiles. Now, this is a big deal. Okay, so he's standing in front of King Agrippa and Festus. He's standing in front of the king of Judea and the governor of the region, the Roman governor. If that sounds familiar, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus had to stand before King Herod and Pontius Pilate. Paul is in a very similar setting. And he's standing here now for the, this is the third or fourth time he's having to give this defense. So Paul's probably sitting there like, okay, yeah, I did this, this, and this, and none of that's true. I got to defend myself again. Or at least that's what you would think. Verse 23 says this. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, they're always together, arrived at the auditorium with great pomp, meaning they were real bougie. 
accompanied by military officers and prominent men of the city. So this is big show going on, right? He's coming up, he's dressed up, and they're blowing the trumpet, and there's music playing because King Agrippa and his sister girlfriend are there, and they're walking in. Verse 24, then Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are here, this is the man whose death is demanded by all the Jews, both here and in Jerusalem. But in my opinion, he has nothing, he's done nothing deserving death. However, since he appealed his case to the emperor, I've decided to send him to Rome. Really, God decided to send him to Rome. But what shall I write the emperor? For this is no clear charge against him. So I have brought him before all of you, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we examine him, I might have something to write. For it makes no sense to send a prisoner to the emperor without specifying the charges against him. Chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. So Paul gestured with his hands and started his defense. He says, I'm fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my case today, my defense today, against all these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. For I know you are an expert on all the Jewish customs and controversies. Now please listen to me patiently. Remember, Agrippa was a Herod. His great granddad killed Jesus, like the kids around Jesus' age. His, his great, excuse me, grandfather or great uncle, one of the two, killed John the Baptist, he was very well acquainted with the gospel, or at least what had happened to Jesus. Maybe not the fullness of the gospel, but he knew about Jesus. Verse four, as the Jewish leaders are well aware, Paul is saying, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood. Paul was trained by a great man by the name of Gamaliel, a great Jewish scholar. And among my own people in Jerusalem, if they would admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. Now I am on trial because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. Paul starts laying out, I know why they're upset with me, but they don't get it. Verse seven, in fact, that is why the 12 tribes of Israel zealously worship God night and day, and they share the same hope I have. Yet, your majesty, they accuse me for having this hope. Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? Paul is saying, I'm on trial today because I believe in the same Messiah they believe in. But here's the difference. I know that he came already. We're not waiting on him any longer. And he was killed by them. And he rose again from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. The only difference between us, Agrippa, the only difference between me and these Jewish people accusing me is I know who the Messiah is. I know him. And they killed him. That's the difference. What happens next is amazing. And you get that picture in your mind of what Paul looks like. He looks like a little short Cajun man with a unibrow. (laughs) And he's standing before these great people. I want you to see this. Verse nine, he says, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. 
authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison, and I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. Many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. I want you to see this. Paul is standing again before these great, powerful men, and you know what he does? He tells his story. He gives his testimony. He preaches the gospel to them. At any moment, they could have killed him. At any moment, they could have kept him in prison, locked him in solitary confinement, done horrible things to him. But he took that moment and said, if I'm here, I'm going to preach the gospel to them. And not only does he do that, I want you to see something. Paul lays out for us how we can tell our story. Because as believers, as Christians, all of us have with us the power to change someone else's life. And it's not us, it's the very power of God inside of us. It's the gospel message that changed your life that has the same power to change someone else's life. It does. And I love how he begins this. It's the same way that we should begin our story. As a matter of fact, the title of our message this morning is The Story I'll Tell. Because we have a story to tell. And he begins it this way, in the same place that we can begin our testimonies. I used to. I used to. If you are a Christian in this place, you have a I used to. And some of us are are excited to share the I used to. Some of us are in that place where we're nervous about the I used to. Don't be nervous about what God's delivered you from. Because that is the thing that can relate, someone can relate, relate to that and go, if God can do that in your life, then he can do that in mine. And I've heard story after story after story. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, I have the privilege of being with people in the best moments of their life and the worst. And I get to hear the best of stories and I hear stories that would make you cringe and cry. But I've seen God redeem the worst of the worst of the worst. And there's not a single person in this place that is too far gone for God to redeem. There isn't. It's not a person in your family. It's not that person in the neighborhood. It's not that kid at the school. There's nobody outside of God's realm that he can't change. Paul is saying, this is what I used to do. You want to talk about being a Christian? I used to kill them. I chased them to different cities to try and stop them and imprison them and stop this thing. This was my used to. And for those of you who would say, well, Pastor, I was born in church. I don't really have a used to. I know people who were born in church. You still have a used to. Just because you went to church doesn't mean you were in the kingdom. You may have been here and you may have been around stuff, been around Christian, faithful every Sunday morning, but you weren't in the, the kingdom. Well, I prayed a prayer, Pastor, when I was five years old. That doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean you surrendered your life and you stayed faithful to him and you lived for him. Those moments in your life where you weren't and you still hoping your parents to this day don't find out about them. That's part of your testimony. It's part of your story. Because there are other people who did the exact same thing who can relate to that. 
What's your story? We all have a used to. Share that. And then the next part of his story says, I used to. Then verse 12, he says, one day, one day, one day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priest about noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a slight, excuse me, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on me and my companions. We all fell down and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Who are you, Lord, I asked. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. We've talked about Paul's story in this series, so I won't go back to this, but I want you to see this. Part of your testimony, there's the I used to, and then there's the one day. When you're sharing Jesus with people, you're sharing your story with people, don't leave out the one day. Don't leave out the moment he stepped in because there was your story and then he steps into that story and changes the narrative. That's the moment that people need to hear. That's the moment that changes people's lives because they see that if God can do that in one moment for you, he can, maybe he can do that for me. I sat in, a, I had a long appointment that I was in yesterday and I sat down and I'm, I'm talking with this person and it wasn't like a church appointment, like I wasn't there for, they didn't come to see me, I went to see them. So I'm sitting in this appointment and it took a while and I did exactly what I'm talking about. I told this guy about the before Jesus that I used to and then I told him about the one day. That one day that changed my life is what draws people in. Man, God can do that in him. And I made a comment to him and I didn't really think about it, but I thought, I thought about it since I said it. I said, I'm forever grateful to God for what he's done. I'm forever grateful to God for my one day. It changed my life forever. And sometimes we have to go back there and remember what that one day was like for us because we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. I don't care if you were on the dean's list in college or if you were just getting out of prison. We all have a one day. Verse 16, now get to your feet. This is Jesus talking to Paul. For I, am, I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and my witness. Tell people that you have seen me and tell them what I will show you in the future. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Then they will receive forgiveness for their sins and be given a place among God's people who are set apart by faith in me. Jesus is saying, go out and tell them about me. Go out and tell them what I've done for your life. That call is for all of us as well. Go out and share your story. Go out and tell them what he's done for you. If we want the world to change, it is not going to change with politics. If we want our communities to change, it's not going to change by simply walking around and holding signs or handing out water bottles. It is going to change when the kingdom changes, 
when it changes it, when the kingdom is expanding and people's lives are being changed. That's how the kingdom works. It's person by person by person by person by person by person. That's how it works. And Jesus is saying to Paul, I'm sending you to do that. And because of this one man, there are millions and millions and millions of people years later because he did what God asked him to do. That's what brings about change. I love the way Pastor Jacob said, I want you to think about your life for a moment. When Pastor Jacob was here last week, he made a comment that I thought was so great. And he was talking about it in the sense of business, but it's, it's applicable to our everyday life. He says, when you bring Jesus into anything, it shifts it from being temporal to being eternal. When you bring Jesus into your everyday interactions with people, your interactions go from being a temporary, temporal thing to something that has eternal ramifications. Man, there's so many things. I got got to keep going for the sake of time. All right. What What did God do with Paul in that moment? He redeemed him. I want you to think about that word redeeming for a minute. How many of you are coupon clippers? Thank you. One honest woman in this entire place. Some of y'all have been in Albertsons holding up the line because you're cutting your little coupons in front of us. When you have a coupon, right, or a gift card, you bring it to the person and what do you do with it? You redeem it. That's what Jesus does in our lives. He takes an abstract value that we have and makes it a real value. He took this man who had potential to have a great life and he redeemed his wicked life and made it a great life. That's what God does in our life. He redeems our lives. Verse 19, and so King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all Judea and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sins and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. Here's the final part of his testimony. He's gone through, this is how I was. This is the I used to, to the one day, to the and so I obeyed. That's the three parts of our testimony, who we were when God stepped in and who we are now. The I obeyed him, the I followed. You can short circuit a testimony by only having the first two. Man, I was so, so bad. I was such a horrible person and then Jesus changed me. So now I'm just miserable. (laughs) Now I come to church, I don't have fun anymore. And I'm, or I'm, I'm waiting for the rapture, sitting in, the, in my garage eating MREs. That's not a life. And that's not what he called you to. When he redeems you, he gives your life purpose and meaning and, and, some, and a kingdom sense significance. So what Paul did, was he let God do that and he obeyed it and because of that, God used him. What's the purpose that God has called you to? 
Because there is one. That's not just a cute Christianese thing that people say. There is a legitimate purpose, and the Bible confirms that. Later on, it tells us in Ephesians, I'm not going to go there, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You're not just saved to be saved. You're saved for a purpose. And you're saved to bring his glory into the earth, to spread the kingdom, to share the message, to share your story with people who need to hear it. You're not just saved for, you're saved to. Saved to do good works. It's not the good works that save you, but that's a part of it. He saves you in his grace and he gives your life meaning and significance and purpose and reason. Verse 21. I'm almost done. So the Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they tried to kill me. But God has protected me right up to this present time so I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. I teach nothing except what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead. And this way, excuse me, and in this way, announce God's light to the Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul is saying, this is why I'm in chains, so that I can give you the gospel. This is why I'm here, so I can deliver this to you. As a side note, let me just tell you, you may not like your job, you may not like your neighborhood, but while you're there, let God use you. That doesn't mean you have to stay there, but while you're there, let God use you. Wherever the circumstances of life have led you to, be a light while you're there. Can God change it? In a moment, he can. In an instant, he can change your circumstance. But stay faithful to him while you're in the thing you don't like. Paul is saying, I'm here to be a light. 24, suddenly Festus shouts, Paul, you are crazy. You're insane. I mean, imagine this. Paul's giving the gospel, sharing his hardest testimony, and the king said, I mean, the governor says, are you a fool? Like, dude, what's wrong with you? He says, too much study has made you crazy. Paul didn't shrink back. He didn't get scared. He didn't go, oh my gosh. He replied, I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus. He honored the man for who he was. What I am saying is that is the sober truth. And King Agrippa knows about these things. I speak boldly, for I am sure these events are all familiar to him, for they were not done in a corner. King Agrippa, he leans in in this moment. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Short, bald, bow-legged man with a unibrow. It's confronting with truth the two most powerful men in his region, in his nation, if you will. Paul didn't get offended by the fact that they called him crazy because to the fool, to the, the perishing, this is foolishness. What I'm talking about today for those who are lost seems like foolishness. But Paul knew it was true. The same way you've got to know it was, it's true. And he leaned in and he says, I know you believe. 
Some of us don't share our testimony. We don't share the gospel with people. We don't share our story with people because we're afraid to be rejected. Can I tell you how to get over rejection? It's not to protect yourself from it. It's to go through it. It's when you go through rejection and you realize it didn't kill me. It's not the end of my world. When you're rejected and you when you so fear rejection and you're rejected and, and you see you go through it, it's almost like being inoculated to it. So the next time it happens, it doesn't sting as bad. And the next time it happens, it doesn't hurt as bad. It doesn't bother you at all anymore. Because you know the truth and you know in whom you believe. Verse 28, Agrippa interrupted him. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Like Paul, like really already? You're going in for the kill? Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. Then the king, the, the governor, Bernice, and all the others stood and left. As they went out, they talked it over and agreed. This man hasn't done anything to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, he could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. It may seem like Paul messed up by appealing to Caesar, but it didn't. This was all the will of God. This was all God's plan. Even in change, Paul knew who he was. Now, don't miss this. I'm closing. This is my closing statements, I promise. These men are known in history, but they're known most in history, not as great men, but they're known in history because they stood before a great man. They had the power, they had the money, they had the influence, but history tells us they stood before a great man. And that great man was Paul the Apostle, in chains, in weakness in our eyes, but full of the power and the glory of God, doing what God called them to do. And what did God call them to do? Share the story. Some of you feel like you've missed out on significance in your life. It's not too late. Share your story. Some of you feel like, I, I, maybe I'm, I've missed what my life was supposed to be for. No, 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 you haven't. You have a story to tell that people need to hear. And it has within it the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change people's lives, to change communities, to change cities, to change nations, and to change history. Share your story. Share your story. Festus died in two years. He was the only governor in that region for two years, and he had the opportunity to have received the gospel, and then it was gone. Whether he did or not, I don't know, but he had the opportunity to. King Agrippa was the last of all of the Herods. The line of Herods ended with him. The temple that the Jews fought for and wanted to keep the center of the world in 70 AD was demolished and gone. That is how temporary our worlds are. But you know what's the eternal? The kingdom that Paul preached. Close your eyes. Let me pray for you this morning. Father, I thank you. Thank you for the power of the gospel to change our lives, to change our worlds. 
Lord, there are people in this room this morning who have that power living in them and it needs to be released. It needs to be shared. Give them the ability to share their I used to, their one day, and their I obeyed. But Lord, I also pray for every person in this room this morning who's not had that moment. But this is their moment. And you've brought them here for such a time as this to have their worlds changed, their lives changed, their story, their narrative changed. I pray that you would do that in this moment. If you're here today with every eye closed and every head bowing, you say, Pastor, I need that moment with God and I want that moment with God. I want to serve Jesus with my life. I need my sins and want my sins forgiven and I want to follow him. What we're talking about is what the Bible calls being born again. And it's a very simple process. It's simple because Jesus did all of the hard work when he died on that cross for your sins. A, we say it's as easy as ABC. A, you admit that you're a sinner. You're, you're honest about that. I'm a sinner and I'm far away from God. B, you believe. Believe what? That God sent Jesus to die on that cross for your sins so that they could be washed away. And C, you confess. You confess what? That from this moment on, he is Lord. That I'm bowing my knee and I'm following him and I'm doing life his way. That when he died and rose again from that day, from the dead, that was for me. So when no one looking around, if you say, Pastor, that's me, that's my, I want this in my life. I need this in my life. When no one looking around on the count of three, I just want you to lift up your hand. And I want to acknowledge who I'm praying with. I'm going to lead you in a prayer of surrender to God. One, two, three. If that's you, when no one looking around, lift it up. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Anyone else? Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Praise God. Anyone else? Thank you. Wow. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you. See your hand back there. This is your moment. This is your moment. Church, let's pray this prayer out loud together as we surrender afresh to God. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, and for my shame. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go there. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. I turn away from my sin. I repent of my sin. And I choose to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you're my father. Jesus, you're my savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's celebrate with everybody that prayed that prayer this morning.